The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, let's, let's have a word of prayer as we be, begin this time in the Word of God. Thank you, Lord God, for the many, many blessings you have poured out upon this church over this, these past 30 years. Uh, thank you for my dear friend Brian and his dear wife and the wonderful ways in which you have used Brian and Ariel these years uh, to uh, strengthen so many people, bring people to faith and strengthen them in the faith. Thank you for the other elders who serve with them as pastors here. Thank you for these deacons that were up here a moment ago and for their um, just sacrificial service to assist uh, the ministries of this church to go forward. And uh, thank you, Lord, for the the membership, the congregation, Lord, that has come faithfully and, and uh, comes week by week to, to grow and uh, minister to one another as well as be ministered to by the word. And uh, so, Lord, uh, Jody and I, who are privileged to be here, just uh, rejoice in what you have done here. And we pray that uh, now as this conference is coming to a close, we pray that it would uh, close it away that you would receive all the glory and that your word would be upheld and that we, your people, uh, would know your presence powerfully at work in our lives. Uh, we, we need you. Uh, we want you. We love you. And we long for your work among us even now. So give us minds to understand, um, hearts to embrace, and uh, desires, Lord, that follow from that to live faithfully before you increasingly. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I know I speak for the Beakies as well. What a joy to be with you this weekend. I wish we could come here every week. That'd be fun. It's just a little far, but uh, uh, we, we just uh, love your church and are so grateful for this uh, outpost for the kingdom here in Minden, Nevada. So thank you for the kindness and warmth. So many of you have have spoken with us and thank you for your kind words and your warm welcome to us and the wonderful time with you. Well, the last of my messages with you on the doctrine of scripture, we've been looking at the, in the first week on Friday, the first session, I'm sorry, on Friday, uh, we looked at the, 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 the Bible as the revelation of God. So kind of in the context of uh, what we see in 1 Corinthians 2, of God giving revelation to the Apostle Paul and the other apostles of the early church. And then that revelation is, is uh, um, communicated by the Apostle Paul through inspired words. So words not taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, which is, of course, what we have in the Scriptures. And then that same word, then, is preached with boldness. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 2 as well. And then is, is understood by us through illumination by the Spirit. So the Spirit's work in revelation, inspiration, proclamation, and illumination, all announced in that passage. The, the second uh, message that I brought was on the inspiration of Scripture, and we focused primarily on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, and saw there this amazing truth, I just mind-boggling, that indeed God was able to communicate every word as he wanted it, every grammatical construction as he designed it, every flow of argument exactly as he designed it to be through human authors who wrote what they thought and what they wanted to write. Incredible, isn't it? So working in the minds and the hearts of human beings so that what they want to write is in fact what God directs them to write. And so we have this as the word of men, yes, but it's Holy Bible. It's the Holy Scriptures. It is ultimately, fully, thoroughly, inerrantly, authoritatively the word of God. So now we come to this, this third and final session uh, where we look now at the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is God's sufficient word. Now, by way of introduction, many good books. I, I think that's a pretty humorous thing to have written for the, you know, I wrote this obviously before I came to this conference. I'm sorry to announce to you, though, there are no more good books. <laughs> They've all been sold. So, 
I think I need to come up with a different introduction. What, what can I say? No, you know the point, don't you? There are many, many good books, many of them available right here at this conference. Uh, I, you know, I just think of my own life. I am who I am today, having done what I've done for the past 45 years because of a book. When I was 18 years old, at the end of my freshman year of college, I was in a spiritual crisis. I I just was craving to know whether the God of my parents, the God of my upbringing, I grew up in in a Christian home and was raised in the church, whether the God of my parents, the God of my upbringing was the true and living God. Could I continue to commit myself fully to following that God? So this was such an, oh, I don't know, passionate uh, quest for me that uh, it's the only time in my life I have fasted seven days. I've never done it again. Just to indicate to you, this isn't something I routinely do. Uh, I fasted seven days water only and pleaded with the Lord, are you the true God? Will you make yourself known to me in some way that I would know you are the true God and I, am def- and I will follow you. I pledge myself, I will follow you if I just know you are the true God. Well, six days went by, all of those days praying fervently, you know, taking prayer walks out in the woods and falling on my face before the Lord and it was like there was a ceiling over my head. Nothing, nothing happened for six days. I was so discouraged. On that seventh day of the fast, I went to my brother-in-law's house. He was a seminary student in Portland, Oregon, same seminary that Brian and I both went to, Western Baptist Seminary in Portland. And I went to Wayne, and I said, Wayne, you know, I just am really craving to know who the true God is. Have you read anything? Have any suggestions of what I might be able to read to help me with that? And he said, well, funny you should ask. I just finished reading a book for a class here that is on who God is, and you're welcome to read it. And he hands me a copy of A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, if, if you haven't read it, put it on your, on your list, your short list of books that, that you must read. A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy, CNA, CNMA uh, pastor in Chicago and Toronto, well, this, this book, I took it home with me and read it from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. that day. So I was still fasting, you know, right through the dinner hour, uh, you know, eager to drink my tomato juice the next morning, uh, which was tasted incredibly wonderful. <laughs> Just have to say, it's amazing. And that book, oh my goodness, the Lord spoke powerfully through that book in my life, and I, I went to bed that night. I honestly don't know what happened that night. I don't know if I slept or not. I don't know if I was in a trance. I, I just know that through the night, I communed with the Lord, and he came to me in a very powerful way and affirmed, this is the true God. So I just look back at that and realize, wow, books can have such a huge impact. For Jody, the uh, Packers knowing God made a huge impact on her life. We could all name books, couldn't we? So yes, there are many books, and I'm so grateful for books that have had a huge impact on my life. But there is only one book that is fully authoritative because it is fully inspired by God. It is fully inerrant. The things that I write, that Dr. Beakey writes, that, that your pastor Brian writes, I mean, we hope good stuff. We hope so, but we don't claim inerrancy, right? Be like the Bereans. See if these things be so according to this book, right? In anything that we write, I know they would affirm that. This is the book, the standard, the norm by which everything else is judged. And, and hence, as it is the word of God, inspired by God, uh, authoritative because it is from God, inerrant because it is from God, it also is then sufficient. 
for everything that God has for us, for what we are to believe and how we are to live our lives. So let me uh, walk through this definition with you of the sufficiency of Scripture. Then we'll look at some passages together after we think of that, about that a bit. And, uh, and then some, some uh, practical applications in how to approach our times in the Bible. So on, on the outline, I'm at Roman numeral two now. What does the sufficiency of Scripture mean and not mean? So first, a definition of what the sufficiency of Scripture means. <clears throat> scripture sufficiency is that quality of Scripture by which God has ensured that everything that his people need to know and believe for a correct understanding of the Christian faith and for their walk of faith in obedience and growth in Christ-likeness has been provided for them fully and infallibly in the canonical Christian scriptures. So notice, there are two main areas that the sufficiency of scripture uh, guarantees. Notice, look at the definition again. It's that quality of scripture by which God has ensured that everything that his people need to know and believe, number one, for a correct understanding of the Christian faith. So in other words, for all that we are to believe, the content of our faith, the, the, the substance of the doctrines that we are to affirm as Christian people, who, who God is, who, who Christ is, what salvation is, what our nature is, created by God, fallen, redeemed in Christ. Everything that we are to believe as Christian pe- people that comprises the Christian faith is sufficiently provided for us in Scripture. Other books, as helpful as they are, are helpful only insofar as they elucidate what is here in the Scriptures. They're not adding to the Scripture. If they're doing that, <laughs> we, we don't want it, right? This is extra revelation or something, claims of something beyond the Bible, and that's not what we hold as Christian people. Books that are helpful elucidate what is here because this is the sufficient uh, the source of revelation from which we draw our understanding of the faith. So, for a correct understanding of the Christian faith, but secondly, for our walk of faith in obedience and growth in Christ-likeness. For faith and practice, right? For what we believe and how we are to live. These two broad areas, then, God has provided for us everything we need in, in his fully and infallibly given Christian scriptures. So here's another definition. I I didn't type it on here, but this is from John Owen. And I just think it's a helpful brief statement of this. Owen writes, the sufficiency of scripture means that all divine truths necessary to be known and to be believed, that we may live unto God in faith and obedience. Do you hear those same two categories? Faith, what we are to believe, obedience, how we are to live, that all that, uh, that we may live unto God in faith and obedience, or come unto and abide in Christ, and also be preserved from seducers, are contained in the Holy Scriptures. So everything we are to believe, how we are to live, and to guard us against false teaching, seducers out there, is contained in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so that's what sufficiency refers to. Now, what does the sufficiency of Scripture not mean? Well, let me suggest two things to you that it does not mean. Number one, it does not mean that Scripture is the only revelation that God has given or will give to people. We believe that God has given both general and special revelation, and special revelation includes more than what has been recorded in Scripture as well as what will be revealed in the new creation. So, so indeed, general revelation, the, the created world that we live in, the heavens declare the glories of God. In Romans chapter one, his, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made. So indeed, there is the revelation of God in creation, the law written on our hearts. So conscience is another way in which God reveals himself to us, the moral law of God written on our hearts. Every single human being is born with an imprint of the moral 
law of God. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear, bear false witness. It's here. Right, so this, the revelation of God includes the general revelation in creation and conscience. It also includes special revelation. Far beyond the Bible, you think of all that the prophets spoke, only some of which is, is recorded. You think of all that Jesus taught, only some of which is in the red letters of your New Testament, right? But all of that is the revelation, the special revelation of God. And then we think also of, goodness, of heaven, when I can't wait to sit in that class with Jesus teaching us, you know? And, and I don't think we're going to have a clock in the back to worry about. I just, wow, what, what an amazing thing that we, we will go on learning the glories of God, the, the intricacies of the, the saving work that God has done. And, and so, yes, there is revelation yet to come, but for now, for this age, this book... The Bible is the sufficient revelation that God has for us to know what we are to believe and how we are to live. Yes, there's other revelation, but this is the only fully authoritative, final uh, revelation of God for the church, for what we are to believe and how we are to live. Secondly, what the sufficiency of Scripture does not mean it does not mean that the Scripture is sufficient for areas of knowledge that Scripture is not intending to address. For example, I just put down a few you know, little funny things here. For example, it's not sufficient as an infallible guide to the culinary arts. You know, you're not going to go to the Bible and find out how to bake your chocolate cake, you know, or uh, how, how long to to cook your potatoes or, you know, we don't have that in the Bible or it's not a sufficient guide to auto mechanics or computer programming or learning to play the guitar and on and on. Yet while it is not intended to provide sufficient knowledge in these and many other areas, it does provide, now look at this carefully, it does provide necessary and sufficient instruction of both Christian belief and Christian conduct in pursuing any of these and all other areas of life. So how do I conduct myself as a Christian as I'm doing computer programming? How do I conduct myself as a Christian as I work out my vocation that God has given me? With my friendships with others and in our marriages as, as we heard this morning and in all these different ways, we look to the scriptures for the kind of people that we are called to be, the beliefs that we are called to have in order to live in those ways as Christians and honor God uh, as we live in ways that he has directed us to from the word of God. So the scriptures are sufficient for Christian faith and practice, for what we are to believe and how we are to live. So biblical support for this. I want to take you back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 to notice something that I passed over when we looked at this passage uh, yesterday. Um, we, we took a look at this as, as one of the strongest supports for the doctrine of inspiration, but I do think there is something embedded in here that's, that indicates the sufficiency of Scripture as well. So look again with me at this astonishing statement that Paul makes of Scripture. Number one, or I'm sorry, it's verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So remember we talked about this uh, yesterday, <clears throat> that Scripture both is the inspired word of God and because of that it functions in the way that it functions. Something can only do what it does because it is what it is, right? So, I mean, you realize, so, so scripture, look at, look at the claim that Paul is making of what it can do. It can do what, what, what is profitable for is for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Nothing lacking then in what you need that isn't found in the scriptures. Isn't that an incredible claim? I mean, really, if we believe this, wouldn't we devote ourselves more wholeheartedly to the study of this word 
reading and thinking and meditating and taking this in, if it really can do that, and it really can do that because it is the inspired word of God. Because of what it is, it can do what it does. Okay, so that's a little bit of review of what we talked about. But I want you to notice those four qualities of its profitability in verse 16. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, when you look at those four, it's kind of interesting. There's an A, B, B, A structure. Something positive, negative. Negative, positive. Do you see it? Teaching, positive. Uh, correction, negative. I'm sorry, uh, teaching, reproof, negative. Correction, negative. Training in righteousness, positive. So it, it looks as though what Paul is doing is taking the... the the, the, the bookmarks at the ends of these two as the two primary ones, both of which need to have its alternate correction or its um, warnings in regard to. So you have teaching at one end of the bookends and you have training in righteousness at the other. And I would suggest to you that those two mark out the two aspects of what Scripture is sufficient for, for teaching that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So all that you need to know from where? All Scripture is God-breathed. And therefore, it is profitable for the teaching that you need to know for every good work. You see it? And at the, end, at the bookmarks at the end of that, training in righteousness. I take it is a phrase that refers much more to training us in how to live our lives. You know, Dr. Beakey has mentioned several times in, in, along the way in his messages uh, these holy habits that we are to develop in our Christian lives, the disciplines of the Christian life. So indeed, the, the Bible charts out for us how we are to live and the kinds of things that we need to practice regularly to live life to honor the Lord. So where where do we learn those things? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for training in righteousness. Do you see it? So you have the bookends then of the faith we are to believe, the teaching and the training in righteousness, the way we conduct ourselves in life is is taught us in the scriptures. But then along with those two, you have the two negative things that are in the middle there. So yes, you need to know the teaching of the Christian faith. You need to know the teaching of scripture to to know what we are to believe as Christians. But you also need to receive from the, the scriptures its warnings of what not to believe, right? It's it's cautions to us, don't go in these other directions. Don't, don't believe the lies of the world. And it's one of the responsibilities of elders. In Titus, if you want to look at that, just turn over a page. I think that's all you'll need to do in your Bible. To Titus 1.9. And notice that elders here, among the things that they're told to, to do and be responsible for is this. Titus 1.9. They are to hold fast the faithful word, obviously the scriptures, which is in accordance with the teaching, the apostolic teaching, so that that elder will be able both to exhort in sound doctrines, that's the positive side of things, teaching us what we should believe, and to refute those who contradict. Isn't that interesting? So it, it, it is the positive side, and I think the positive side would be the majority emphasis of a, of a, a pastor's teaching and preaching, helping us understand what we are to believe, but it dare not exclude the warnings against false teaching, especially, I would argue, especially when those false teachings are, are impacting your people. They're books they're reading, you know? They're, they're you know, well-known preachers out there who are preaching false teaching and your people are listening to them. Well, you've got to then warn them against these things lest they get caught up in it right? Okay, well, the scriptures themselves, back to 2 Timothy 3.16, the scriptures themselves encourage this very thing, both teaching constructively what we are to believe as Christian people. Ultimately, all of our faith is grounded 
sola scriptura, right? In the scriptures alone as the only final, the only ultimately authoritative source for us. But the scriptures also help us to see we, we cannot go the way of the world. We cannot believe in, in uh, the, 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 uh, the wisdom of this world and the, the philosophical ideas that are presented that are contrary to the teachings of scripture. So, both what we are to believe and, and what we should avoid in, in terms of the content of our faith. But then, on the other side, Back again to uh, verse 16 and 17. In verse 16, so then also training in righteousness, again, the positive things that we are to do. Uh, Put on, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you not know that you've died and been raised with Christ? And so so live your lives as those who have been freed from the power of sin and, and in been united with Christ and you have power now by the Spirit to live new lives. And so all of this marvelous teaching about how we are enabled by God to grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of God and grow in Christ-likeness. So, so indeed, so much of the New Testament is oriented toward that training in righteousness. But again, there's also with that the correction, which, which means we don't live these ways. We put off as well as put on as Paul will say in Colossians and Ephesians, right? So indeed, there are these things of the world that we must shun. We should have nothing to do with. We must discard that. So we must be warned not to go in those directions while we are commended for the wisdom and the beauty and the joy and the goodness of going in God's way because his ways are always right, always good, always advancing of our well-being as they are advancing of our holiness. Isn't it amazing? Holiness, happiness. The godly life and the good life. They're one and the same. Don't ever believe the lie that the godly life, the holy life is over here, but the happy life and, and, and the, the satisfied life is over there. No, it's a wicked, wicked, deceitful lie. So indeed, don't, don't go that way. Do go this way and you find in so doing true life, true joy. I have come that you might have life, says Jesus, and have it a little bit. Uh-huh. Abundantly. You know, the, these, these commandments I've given to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be minimized. No, made full. Isn't that amazing? So, yes, the, the life that God calls it. So, I would suggest to you that built into 2 Timothy 3.16 3, and these very four qualities that are stated there indicate all that we need ultimately that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. You know, there's no qualification there. You know, this gets most of it, but you need some help with a few other things out there. No, this is it. This is the ultimate source we need, is the Bible itself, because it is the Word of God. It is therefore sufficient for faith and practice. Now, let me take you to another passage that I think is helpful in this, is 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 3 to 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. So Peter writes... Let me, let me begin with verse two just because it, uh, otherwise it starts in the middle of a sentence. Grace to you and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He'll come back to knowledge in just a moment. The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. Is that the word used in your Bible? All things. Okay, all things, everything. <clears throat> I take it that word means nothing's left out, okay? Everything is everything. All things is all things. Pertaining to life and godliness. So here again, I think is, is, is the life and godliness. I think the main emphasis in this passage is on how we are to live our lives, the kinds of 
characters we need to have, the kinds of ways we need to live with one another. So I think the main emphasis in 2 Peter is more on the second part of this, the, the practice side, faith and practice, the practice side of things. But nonetheless, it relates to who we are as well, what, what, what we are to believe. So it's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through what? The true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Question, how do we have that true knowledge? Where is that true knowledge of his glory and excellence? In the scriptures. Where else do you go? There's no no other place we would go to have that. So implicit in this is appeal to the scriptures as the source of knowing who God is and his own glory and excellence. For by these, by this knowledge of his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now by that, in verse four, when he says partakers of the divine nature, don't think in the, in the, uh, the Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox kind of a way that we we become God, or we, we are absorbed into the nature of God. That's not what Peter is saying here at all. He's rather saying that God's character is reproduced in us, bit by bit by bit. His holiness becoming our holiness. His infinite holiness becoming our finite holiness, right? So we, we partake in the divine nature as his communicable attributes, attributes that, that he shares with us, mark our lives increasingly. His wisdom becoming our wisdom. His knowledge becoming our knowledge. His, his compassion becoming our compassion and on and on. I just realize what, this really is what life is about, isn't it? Is growing as people to take on more and more of the characteristics of God that, that we might be godly. Or, if you prefer, taking on the characteristics of Christ because those are the same qualities to becoming more Christ-like. So, that's what he means when he says partakers of the divine nature, taking on more and more of those qualities, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply... So here we begin this list. Look, look at this list of qualities that comes from the revelation of God implicitly in this text in Scripture that gives us the knowledge of God that enables us to enter into the sharing in the very qualities of God's nature, which are what? Well, like moral excellence. In your diligence, in your face supply, moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So I think the the main emphasis here is on these qualities that mark how we are to live our lives, the kind of things that mark us as we grow in Christ-likeness, grow in godliness, and then exhibit that in our relationships with others and, uh, and, and before the Lord. So these qualities, don't, don't misunderstand what Peter is saying here. He's not saying that you have to acquire these qualities in order to qualify to be saved, He's not saying that. This is not salvation by works or salvation by self-improvement. No such thing. It is rather because you are God's child, because you are being granted his divine nature, uh, being reproduced in your nature, because you are his, this is what it will look like. These are the qualities that will mark you as a growing child of God. And hence, 
If these are not happening at all, then the question comes, as you can see in verses eight and nine, uh, that then you wonder whether or not you really have been brought into the faith, whether you really are a child of God, because these qualities should mark us. And so be diligent, as he says in verse, in verse 10, to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. As you see these qualities taking root and growing in your own life. So indeed, the scriptures give, giving us the knowledge of God, of his character, whose character then and his promises work within us to transform us increasingly to have these qualities that mark us as God's people and enable us to live our lives in a way that honors him. So indeed, the scriptures give us this knowledge of God and the accompanying then qualities of life that we need to live life as God calls us to. Okay, uh, capital letter C, Jesus teaching that supports the sufficiency of scripture. Take a look with me at John 8. It's a very um, well-known passage, but I don't know if we've thought about it in terms of the sufficiency of scripture, but it certainly does relate to this. In John chapter 8, Verses 31 and 32, Jesus has a number of people that he has been speaking to, and a a, a number of these, it says in verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So they now have come to believe in Christ, and so then Jesus says to them in verse 31, Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So again, here I think the main emphasis is on living our lives. Faith and practice, more on the side of of practice. But it does involve knowing the truth to be there, right? So it really is both of them, even though the the main emphasis he's making is on the impact of how we live, the freedom of life that we have to live as Christians. But notice that he says, if you continue in my word. So again, this is word-based knowledge, you shall know the truth, word-based knowledge, and then by that, word-based freedom. That knowledge provides then how we are to live in a way that is free. And by the way, in case, you're, you know, in case you're thinking of freedom the way we normally do in our culture, freedom means this, doing whatever I feel like doing it, doing whenever I feel like doing it, with whom I feel like doing it, and don't bother me about it. That's freedom, right, in our culture? Well, look back at verses 28 and 29 and how Jesus lived his life. So here's Jesus who is commending to us the free life. Here's how Jesus lived his life. Verse 28, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing, circle the word. I do nothing on my own initiative. I speak these things as the father taught me. Verse 29, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always, circle the word, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So here is Jesus who says, I never consider what I want to say or want to do. I, I, am, I never do things by my own initiative. I always am concerned that I am carrying out the will of my Father. You know, like he said in John chapter four, after his conversation with the Samaritan woman and the disciples came to bring him food, he says, I have food to eat that you, don't, you do not know of. And they didn't see a McDonald's anywhere nearby. You know, where did he get food? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is what sustains me. This is what, what nourishes me is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So this is how Jesus lived his life, right? Always doing the will of another, his father, always. How do we know he always did that? Well, it says so here, right? Verse 29, but how else do we know that? He lived a sinless life. Wouldn't it be a sin not to do the will of his father, right? So he always did the will of another, of his father. And, and, and by that, 
lived, now here it is, the freest human life that has ever been lived. The freest human life that has ever been lived. Because he knew the word of his father. He acted out what the father wanted him to do. And by that, experienced the fullness of life as his life was designed to be. Well, how are our, what are our lives designed to be? To do whatever we want? No, no. We too are designed by God to be those who always find our joy in doing his will. We, we have died to ourselves, right? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, right? So there is this sense in which we realize, no, we, we don't have ownership of our own lives. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with our bodies, right? So indeed, we, we live our lives in a way in which we always seek to please Christ, as he always sought to please the Father. Okay, so how do we live that way? You shall know the truth, and the truth will Enable you to live like I lived, right? Free, genuine freedom. Experiencing always the joy of living the the way that God intends us to. Carrying out his will according to his ways, according to his truth and his word. So here I would argue again that when Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, this is what you need to know in terms of what you are to believe and then how you are to live is found in the teachings of Christ. So now, you, you know, this next question comes up, what are the teachings of Christ? Let's go on to the next couple passages. And I think you'll see that when he says, you shall know my word, and if you, if you abide in my word, then you will be disciples of mine, you will know the truth. So where is that word found? Well, Luke 24, you know this text, but it's just good to consider it in this context. Jesus meeting with his disciples and some others after his resurrection, and he had, he had appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. That was just in the previous part of the chapter. And now he's with his disciples, and he says to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms or the writings must be fulfilled. So indeed, all of the Old Testament testifies of Christ. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms or writings refer to the entire Old Testament. All all 39 books of the Old Testament are categorized in those three divisions. And so the Old Testament is fully about Christ. And then in the New Testament, go to John 16. We've talked about this, but I just want to bring it into light here. John 16, verses 12 to 14, I have many more things to say to you. This is to his disciples. But you cannot bear them now. He he has so much more to tell them, but they can't get it. They, they didn't understand, as I mentioned earlier in another message, they didn't understand even Jesus teaching them, I'm going to die, uh, I'm going to be, be in, the, in the grave for three days, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. They didn't get that, right? So they, they need the Spirit. So indeed, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, presumably from Christ, he will speak, he will disclose to you what is to come, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So indeed, the teaching of Christ, I would argue, is the whole New Testament as Christ by the Spirit moved the New Testament writers to write what they did, and as they write what they did, they were writing what Christ was directing them to write by the Spirit. So I think these passages in uh, John 8, Luke 24, John 16 also help 
in understanding the sufficiency of Scripture, the life we are called to, to live and the knowledge we are to have is grounded in the revelation that has been given and given by Christ. And of course, just one little final comment on this. We know that revelation ends. That is the revelation that is binding upon all of the church for all of, uh, all of the age of the church ends at the end of the apostles. So probably toward the end of the first century, John likely was the last apostle who, who died and with his final book, probably the book of Revelation, uh, was the final writing that was given. So we have then in the completed 66 books of the canonical scriptures, the fullness of God's revelation for us now in this church age, until Christ comes again, that is sufficient for faith and practice, for knowing what we need to know and living that out in freedom, right? You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, faith and practice, in order to live life as God has called us to. Roman numeral four. Looking to scripture then for instruction on all of our questions, in both of these areas of faith and practice. So let me just think with you for a moment about what that means in terms of questions of faith and questions of practice. So what does it mean to believe the scriptures are sufficient for questions of faith, what it is we are to believe? Well, I think that means that we need to be very careful that we are fully committed to the scriptures as the only final and ultimately, ultimately authoritative source we go to. It's not that other places are not helpful to us, like books we've talked about earlier, but they're, they're helpful only insofar as they unpack, clarify, elucidate the teachings that are here in the Bible, but we go here for it. So here are some things that we can be attracted to that can distract us from the, the sole devotion we ought to have to the Bible in that ultimate sense. We can be attracted in our age by experience and feeling. I mean, th- this has just become such a pattern in the, in the culture of our age right now is that reason has pretty much gone out the window, right? And, and what dominates in people's thinking is their, their feelings and their own experiences. So everything is judged to be true or false, good or bad, right or wrong, on the basis of how I feel about it and that sort of thing. So my friends, we just have to, you realize you're breathing that air all the time, right? You're in this culture. And so we, we have to be careful that we don't absorb the culture and buy into this notion of I assess things by how I feel. I assess things by the experiences I've had. No, you need to assess your experience by the scriptures. I mean, how many of you had, had this come to you when, when after you became a Christian, you thought you were the one who initiated your own salvation as you came to faith in Christ, and you thought you did it, and then you come to a church like this where the Bible is taught well to you, and what do you come to find out? Oh, the only way I could come to Christ is have blind eyes opened, a dead heart awakened. So I realized, yeah, I didn't do it. God did it in and through me. So, so indeed, that's just an example of how we need to interpret our experience through the Bible and not interpret the Bible through our experience. Okay, so that's one. Now here's kind of the other end of this thing. There is a kind of rationalism among some people, even within the evangelical world, where a a kind of philosophical reasoning, uh, even sometimes tagged to historical figures in in the Christian church, becomes so dominant that they honestly spend less time focused upon what the Bible teaches than they do with some philosophical tradition or theological tradition that becomes the dominant thing. So indeed, we just have to be so very careful that we don't get so locked into something uh, intellectually that it blinds us from being willing to challenge that, that framework that we have been working in, challenge that framework because of the teachings of scriptures. You know, so I like to, to paraphrase, uh, modify uh, Martin Luther's, um, oh my goodness, um, 
forgive me, you know, it's one of those brain freezes. Some of you know what that is. A mighty fortress. It isn't that hard to come up with, but that's what I, I couldn't come up with. Martin Luther's a mighty fortress. So let goods and systems go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. So yeah, let goods and systems go. Adjust your system to fit the Bible. Please avoid adjusting the Bible to fit your system. You know, I mean, we really have to work hard to be faithful to this. So in questions of faith, yes, there is this experiential route, the feelings type of route. There is even a kind of rationalism that is there. And, and uh, a third thing that I would mention to you by ways of, kind of kind, what we can be tempted toward is a sort of um, moral preference that we have, moral preferences that just lead us to think in advance, this must be right or this must be wrong. So I, I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years who won't accept the complementarian view on the role of women in ministry because they just know that God would never set things up this way, that he would put men in leadership in the home and men in leadership of the church. We just know better. Or, or you know, that, that God would never have commanded the Israelites to destroy all of the citizens of Canaan when they entered the land in the conquest. Well, how do you know that? Oh, I just know. I just know God would never do that. So you have these kind of, these moral preferences that you have in advance of your reading the Bible, as it were, and you interpret the Bible through those things. Those then become more of the uh, the. the authority in directing you rather than the text itself. So all of us, you know what this means? We all have to humbly submit our preconceptions. Humbly submit our sensibilities. Oh, God couldn't be the Calvinist God. Goodness, elect people? No, that can't be. So we have, we have to submit our, our preferences to the scriptures and allow the scriptures to be the ones who inform us so that we follow the Bible in, in all that we believe. And, and, uh, and be like the Bereans the whole of our lives. Check these things out from scripture to see if they be so. What about questions of practice? Well, the questions of practice, that is ethics as it were. Again, we live in a culture that provides a number of ways of uh, sort of living, doing things, that are contrary to the ways of Scripture. You know, so for example, uh, science is elevated so high. Of course, I think COVID took it down a notch or two. That's, that's my guess, right? But still, there is this kind of this aura around science. And so if science tells you that it's okay to do this, then it must be okay to do this. You know, that sort of a thing. And so we just have to be careful again that we don't go with the science yeah, how many times did we hear that phrase? Uh, and, and, uh, and by that, not consider the teachings of scriptures and how we are to live with one another. Uh, another uh, danger that we have in this is when we consider from the culture uh, ways in which the culture has already established how they are dealing with ethical issues, right? So it's well established in parts of the culture out there that this is how they do it with perhaps with sexual ethics or with uh, the abortion issue or whatever the case may be. The fact that the culture is committed in a certain direction should not pull us in that direction unless we're convinced it fits with the Bible. If it doesn't fit with the Bible, we have to be counter-cultural Christians and stand against those ways that the culture is urging upon us. So both in, in terms of questions of faith and questions of practice, we have to be people who say, I'm gonna believe what I believe ultimately because I'm convinced this is what the Bible teaches. And I'm gonna live the way I choose to live because it reflects the way God is calling me to live my life as his teachings and commandments and promises direct me. I'm gonna follow that in how I live my life. And so then, I think this is the only way really that the Reformation commitment to sola scriptura gets lived out in our lives today. Sola scriptura for what we believe, it's the only ultimate authority. 
that we bow to. And sola scriptura for how we are to live. It's the only ultimate authority that we bow to is the scripture itself. Okay, now let me give you in the last moments here some final thoughts on our commitment to uh, reading and study of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, just some suggestions of things that I, I hope may be, may be helpful for you to consider as you think about this. Five things that I commend to you. The first one is the most obvious. Commit yourself to consistent Bible reading. Commit yourself to consistent Bible reading. And of course, for many people, my wife is a great example of this, every year reading through the Bible, you know, and she, she has done this many, many years. I used to do that every year, read through the Bible in a year. I don't do that now. I'll tell you what I do instead in a moment. But, but commit yourself to regular reading of the Bible. If you don't read through the Bible in a year, I mean, goodness, every two or three or four years, you really ought to read through all of the Bible. So it isn't 10 years since you read, read Leviticus, right? That's just not healthy for a Christian person to go so long without being refreshed in their mind of what is covered throughout all of the scriptures. So commit yourself to a regular Bible plan of some kind that will take you through the Bible in a regular way. Secondly, engage in both fast-paced and slow-paced Bible reading. I honestly believe every Christian should do this. I mean, that's a bold statement, isn't it? But I really believe it. I just have found so much benefit to my own life over many years now of reading the Bible two ways. So reading it fast. So I do read the Bible through every three years. That's my pattern. So I read fast, you know, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's what I do, three days a week. And I read through the Bible every three years in doing that. But the other four, three or four days of the week, I meditate. So slow-paced Bible reading. You see, if all you do is the fast-paced Bible reading, let me just pick a chapter um, for an example. Take, take Isaiah 40, for example. Wow. Oh. Do you really want to spend, what, five minutes in a whole year on Isaiah 40, and that's all you're going to do? Or don't you want to linger and take your time and work through it? I mean, Dr. Beaky recommended that great idea of just taking a phrase at a time, you know, and meditating on it. Well, I don't do exactly that, but I, it comes close to that in my meditation. I've meditated now. So, you know, this is how I started meditating on Scripture. I was teaching a college class when I was a college student in Spokane, Washington, where I grew up. And uh, I challenged the, the five or six guys that are, were in this college class to memorize Romans 5 through 8, which we did. Uh, and, you know, in about two months or whatever, we had those four chapters memorized. And we all could recite it verbatim, uh, which was a great achievement. We were very happy about that. But then a few weeks later, a guy came up to me and said, I hear you wrote, memorized Romans 5 through 8, yeah? Well, tell me, what's in Romans 6? And I paused and I said, well, I can quote it for you, but I can't tell you what it, what it says. And I just realized I was so focused on word-perfect memorization that I wasn't actually thinking the thought of the text. Shame on me. So I decided at that point, I'm just going to think the thought of the text. I'm going to read slowly over and over and over and, and uh, by that, absorb the teaching of these glorious texts. And, and I found out that doing that enough times, I ended up oftentimes memorizing it without even trying to, just because of the, the repetition. So if you notice, when I quote scripture, I'm oftentimes off a bit, because I don't work at word-perfect memorization, but I usually get it after a while because I've gone over it so many times. So, this, so the other days of the week, I meditate, and I pick particular passages that are just rich and full and meaty and glorious and, and spend my time going over them slowly, carefully, prayerfully, you know, always praying as I'm doing so. Uh, Lord, open your word to me and open me to your word. That's a constant prayer that I pray. Open your word to me. I need your illumination to see what's there, but open me to your word. 
so that indeed I, I can be transformed by that word. So anyway, I, I just think if you haven't gotten into a habit of meditating on scripture, reading it slowly, prayerfully, over and over and over, I would commend you try it. And you know, more than that, I commend you do it. You know, I just think it's so helpful. Honestly, so many insights the Lord has given to me over the years has come from times of meditation. Where I just see things. You, you stop and smell the roses. You, you, you see details that you otherwise miss. So I commend that to you. Third, notice the who equally as much as the what in your Bible reading. So indeed, yeah, you ought to seek to understand what the Bible teaches, Yes, <laughs> full stop, you ought to do that. But you also ought to see the author of the book, author of the Bible, who's speaking to you through those writings. You know, what if you got a love letter from your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife? Who writes love letters anymore? But anyway, just go with me on this. Suppose you, re- you received a love letter from your dearly beloved uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, and, and, and all you're concerned with is making sure you're understanding the grammar of the, of the letter, right? And looking up the words carefully, right? And, and, you know, when you got that all figured out, you're done. Now, what about the person reflected in the writing of the letter, right? So, I mean, this is a little bit of a stretch, but not much. Consider this book, God's love letter to you, Right? Get to know, oh, the glory, the greatness, the majesty, the, the remarkable holiness, separateness, independence, richness, glory, mercy, grace, kindness, faithfulness, tenderness, forgiveness, Oh, get to know God as you read. And it it will transform your life as you see the God of the Bible as well as the teaching of the Bible. Number four, D, seek both informed minds and stirred affections in your Bible reading. This is just stealing right from Jonathan Edwards. What can I say? I'm, I'm a, you know plagiarizer at this point, but I just, I'll give him credit though, so I guess it's not plagiarism. So, you know, I just learned so much from Edwards in reading his religious affections that I it just, it, it, it hit me because th- this is why it hit me so hard when I read that, because in my childhood, there was a Bible teacher in the Pacific Northwest who went to a lot of churches, including ours, with this series that he did in many churches called Right Thinking, Right Living. And he stressed that, you know, you need to get the the Bible in your mind to live the right way. And I sat there, I think I was 10 years old at the time. I sat there as a 10-year-old boy listening to this series going, it doesn't work. Because I can point people out in the church. You know, there they are, who I know know a lot of Bible, but they don't live it. So here's what was missing that I I didn't know at the time until I read Edwards. We do not naturally passionately, necessarily live out what we know. But we do more often, more credibly live out what we love or hate, what we cherish or despise. So here's what God intends with his word. He intends it to travel. I love this concept of traveling truth. He intends his truth to travel First into our heads. Nothing else happens if it isn't in our heads first. Travel into our heads, but then from our heads to our hearts, where we not only see the truth of the truth, head, but we see the beauty, the wisdom, the luster, the magnificence. You know how many times I use as application points? Marvel. (laughs) If you know me, that's I do. Because... I mean, honestly, that's not a throwaway application point. That is deeply important. Marvel. See see beauty. See glory. And call it out. You know, just revel in it. Or see things that are deeply convicting and embrace it and say, Oh, God, be merciful to me. I need your help. So, indeed, inform minds and stirred affections. And really, so it goes head, heart, 
than hands. So we don't necessarily live out what we know, but we do live out more consistently, more passionately, what has become for us deep convictions of heart, deep affections. Finally, with this we'll close, commit yourself to hear and heed, understand and obey what you encounter in your Bible reading. So always have an eye to you know, what this is telling me about what I should quit doing, what I need to be doing as a Christian. So the commandments, the, the admonitions, uh, sometimes they're attitudinal. Rejoice in the Lord when you feel like it. Again, I say rejoice. No, 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 no. Rejoice in the Lord. Oh, look at that word. Always. Again, so you, know, you read these admonitions and in in these imperatives and you, you realize this is what God is calling us to. So be doers of the word, not merely hearers of the word in your Bible reading. So look for ways in which you are called to live out these glorious truths of God's word and by that be changed. Well, God has given us an incredible gift, unspeakably glorious, precious treasure of a gift in his inspired, inerrant, authoritative, uh, sufficient word. May we devote ourselves to it and grow in becoming more and more what we should be. Remember, something can only do what it does because it is what it is. So, So we can be who we need to be growing in Christ to do what God calls us to do. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time, this afternoon, in uh, con- some concluding thoughts about the glory of your word. Thank you for the scriptures. We are so grateful and pray that you'd help us to even more after this conference be devoted to them as we are devoted to our families. Thank you for the series that Dr. Beakey has done. So helpful, Lord. We, we truly have been blessed. And so we pray that you would help us to apply these things for your glory and the good of us, your people. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.